Sin and Judgment in the Book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The Apostle Paul, as typical, he addresses the Galatians, first by identifying who is writing, Paul. And after saying that he is an apostle, Paul an apostle, he clearly says, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. When we think of the ministry of the apostle and the writings of the apostle Paul, his letters here in the New Testament, We are not at liberty to say that Paul wrote in a human way, that Paul did not write inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Paul's words, Paul's message, Paul's gospel is different than the gospel of Christ. We're not able to do that. Whatever Paul preached came through Jesus Christ and God the Father. There can be no contradiction. That means that we, nor anyone else, can make this contradiction between Paul and Christ, based on verse 1. Moreover, in verses, uh, in verse 4, it says that he gave himself for our sins. What was the reason Jesus died? For our sins. Not to be an example for us to overcome our own sin, as many people think. He didn't die a political death like he was a political rebel who revolted against the government. He didn't die for that reason either, as many people believe. He died on purpose for our sins as a substitute. This is called substitutionary atonement. Atonement has to do with the meaning of the death of Christ. Atonement relates to its meaning or its purpose. Why did he die? And he died as a substitute. He died so that we should not die and go to hell. Further, he gave himself that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. 
The present evil age is called evil. It's not good. This we have to have fixed in our mind that the world right now is an evil world. And Jesus came to deliver us out of this evil world. That means that we cannot have any associations with it. We cannot have any uh, affinity or friendliness toward the world. You shall um, do not love the world nor the things of the world. Whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John two fifteen. So we must understand that the world is evil, God is good. Clear distinction. Verses 6 to 10. The apostle is amazed. Later he will say he is perplexed. He is wondering, what in the world is going on with you Galatians? Because he was with them. He preached to them in this region, to the many churches there. He preached there. And after preaching there, it says, you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. You, after the preaching of the truth, you quickly departed from that truth. How is that? Who does that? Who quickly departs from the truth? That means that nobody, once hearing the true gospel, should ever walk away from it, should never fall away from it. Because it is the grace of Christ that saves us. But he says that the Galatians have embraced a different gospel. A different gospel. When he says different gospel, he doesn't mean a different good gospel, a different true gospel. He makes that very clear in verse 7, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. It's not really another gospel, though people call it a gospel. Paul calls it a gospel, but he calls it a different gospel. This is how it works. False teachers who belong to Satan, false teachers who are in the world and even infiltrate churches, false teachers use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning, and they use common words with an uncommon meaning. So when we ever, when, whenever we hear or whenever we read, we have to understand what words they're using and what they mean by those words. Then say, does the Bible believe it or teach it the way they are describing it. If the Bible contradicts it, then they are false teachers. We cannot give them harbor. We have to reject it because it's a different gospel. It's really not another, not another true gospel. And then he says in 7, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They are currently troublemakers because they disturb the church. That's what they're actually doing. And also, he explains what they desire, what they really want to do. He says they want to distort the gospel of Christ. When was the last time any false teacher openly said, I am here to distort the gospel of Christ? No, they are malicious. They are secret. They do it in a devious way. 
So here he says they want to. It's not though, as though they are just merely ignorant or they just are doing the best they can or they're just repeating what somebody else said. All of those things may be the case in certain uh, situations, but fundamentally, he says, they want to distort the gospel because they have found a benefit in the distortion. That's why. And eight, eight and nine. This is so important to believe one true gospel. It's so important that the apostle says, if we or an angel from heaven were to come, if we or an angel from heaven were to come and preach a gospel contrary to the true gospel that he had already preached, there should be a curse on him. This is how confident he is. And this is how dangerous it is to contradict that true gospel. This is the kind of mind we need to have on the subject. We should not be tolerating distortions and perversions, saying that people are sincere. People are, they still love God. They still believe in the same God. They still believe in Christ. It's not the case, he says here. If they contradict the gospel of Christ, then they have a curse on them. That means that we have to also have this kind of seriousness when we hear something wrong or false, contrary to the gospel of Christ. Because if they are under a curse and we harbor it, we coddle it, we pamper it, we'll be under a curse because we'll be just like them eventually. Verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? What's he saying with this question? He's saying, when he says this, that there is only one true gospel, whose favor is he seeking? It has to be God's, because God is the one who announced it. He proclaimed it. He delivered it through first his servants, the the, the prophets, and then through the apostles. He did so, right? But if men were to invent a gospel, what would men do? Being controlled by the flesh, having confidence in the flesh, what would men do? Today, if men had a choice in the matter, there would be eight billion gospels. We would invent eight billion different ways based on the population of the earth. If we just went by one per head, eight billion, roughly. That's how many. But if it's God speaking, then there's only one gospel. And he's only seeking to please God, not please men. He says, am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ or I would not be a slave of Christ, he says. If I were trying to please men, and he says, if I were still trying, there was a time before his conversion, he was trying to please men, but now he's not trying to please men. He is a slave of Christ, which means whatever our master and Lord Jesus Christ says, that is what we should do. That is what we should believe. 
This is the kind of resolve, determination, distinction, dedication the apostle has to only follow Christ. Anyone who deviates from Christ, there's a curse. And I want nothing to do with him. That's the attitude he had. He understood the true forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And he also understood the judgment or the condemnation if we reject it, compromise, mitigate it. Now, 11, 11 to 24, he is now going to reiterate this fact that he received the true gospel from Christ. 11, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God, I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. The apostle has always, and we see here, in, during his very lifetime, he has had his enemies, those who undermine his truthful, God-given ministry. There have always been. We see it evident right here. That's why he has to say this. He has to tell the Galatians, listen, did you forget? Did you not know? What's wrong with you? I told you, now I'm telling you again, that what I'm preaching, I did not invent, nor did a man invent it. He says, I received it from, no, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, and it's either true or not. He's making the claim, it's either true or not. Paul says that he actually was taught directly by Jesus Christ, which means it had to be done in a miraculous way. Because by that point, Jesus had already ascended into heaven. This is the direct way in which he was taught the gospel. And he has a pedigree. He has a background. He has uh, accreditation. 
He has, as he says, you all know the way I used to live in Judaism. You know how dedicated I was to my ancestral traditions, how I was more extremely zealous than any of my contemporaries for my traditions in Judaism. You know that. And I also persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. You know that. Why is he saying this? So what's the point? The point is that if that's the way he was, what made the difference? Why did he do a complete turn, a complete U-turn, a 180 turn? Why did he do that? What happened to him? This is what happened. Because people in that condition, they don't usually quit. Why did he quit? What stopped him? And what made him go in the opposite direction? It was this conversion and direct teaching by Jesus Christ. And then 15 and following, 15 to 24, he's saying that this was all in the purpose of God. This was all in the plan of God. God is the one who did all of this to reveal the Son of God in him. He was the one who did so. And when he did so, he did not have to immediately consult with the apostles. It says in verse 17, or 16 and 17, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. He had no human teacher immediately. That's the way God meant it. That's the way God did it. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I could have, but I did not. Why? Because Christ was teaching him. And he says he did not um, go up and to Jerusalem until three years later, verse 18. Three years later, he became acquainted with Cephas, and he didn't see the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. That means Cephas and James. Only two. And all this while, he's not going around preaching here and there um, in many, many places, because it says here, the churches of Judea, they still didn't know him by face. Of course, there's no pictures, no videos at that time. So that means that you have to meet the person and then remember the way he looks, be acquainted with him, have some interaction with him. So that's why he says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. They only heard that this one named Paul or Saul he, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. They knew that, but they didn't know who the man was. And he says in verse 20, back to verse 20. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. The Apostle Paul he is completely assuring us, I assure you before God, before the God of heaven, that I am not lying. If he were lying, then the God of heaven would punish him. That's why he's saying it this way. This is the confidence, this is the conviction 
the open conviction that he has. This is very significant. This first chapter of Galatians, just like 2 Corinthians was very significant, to establish the fact that the Apostle Paul is a true Apostle of Christ. No one should ever doubt that. No one should ever undermine that. No one should ever criticize the Apostle Paul for what he writes in his letters. No one should ever do that. And there have been many within Christianity over the years. The Gnostics did that. Marcion did that. Right after the time of the Apostles, they criticized the Apostle Paul. They didn't like a lot of things that he said. And over the years, there have been others too. Like we said, the Gnostics and sometimes Gnosticism and their beliefs pops up and creeps up like a weed, like a poisonous weed, again and again. And also, in Islam, usually Muslims, they hate the Apostle Paul. They don't like what he writes. Hindus, Buddhists, they don't like what the Apostle Paul writes. Atheists, they don't, communists, they don't like what the Apostle Paul writes. They hate him. But we can't have that attitude. If we have that attitude, there's a curse on us. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up. And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we had in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship, to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. His next trip that he relates here in verse 1, 14 years later, he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. And why did he go up at this time? It says in verse 2, because of a revelation. A revelation. Jesus revealed himself and told him what he must do, so he went up. 
And when he went to Jerusalem, he submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. The gospel that he preached in Jerusalem, verse 1, is the same gospel he had been preaching among the Gentiles in verse 2. This is significant because he's going to come back to this point that the Jewish people need to believe in the same gospel as the Gentilic people. The two must believe the one gospel. There's not two separate gospels, 200 or 2,000 or 2 million. There's only one gospel, only one, Jews and Gentiles. And then he says here, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. The apostle running in vain, preaching in vain, laboring in vain. That's what he means here. How could that be? How is it that the apostle Paul might have vain followers? How is it possible the Apostle Paul, vain followers, vain believers, because he preached, they embraced the truth for a short time, and then they're gone. They walk away. Or they still claim to be believers, but preach a different gospel. Then that would be in vain. He didn't want that. He didn't like that thought. That's why he says, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. And what's going on here in Galatia? Circumcision. Circumcision. Now, if you think about circumcision, circumcision is a ritual based on Genesis 17. That's when it first started with Abraham in Genesis 17 when he was 99 years old. It started then. We might consider that it's a minor procedure, a minor surgical medical procedure for boys. And when they are infants, it's much easier to do that than when they are adults. So we might say it's a minor thing. So what is the big deal? It's medical, it's surgical. What is the big deal? But it has become a big deal here. Why? Because the false teachers with the different gospel were saying Christ plus circumcision equals salvation. Yes, yes, we believe Jesus died for our sins. Yes, we do. Plus be circumcised. Then you'll be saved. That's what they were saying. We'll see more of this. That's what is being addressed here. And these people, he calls, notice in verse 4, false Brethren, false. They're called brothers or brethren, just like it says in 1, 6 to 10, different gospel, which is really not another. Here, false brethren, different gospel. They claim to be brothers, but they're not brothers. They are false brothers, false brethren. And how do they behave? This is how we can know. They sneak in. They are secretly brought in. They spy out and they are seeking to undermine, overturn our liberty in Christ. And when they overturn, demolish our liberty in Christ, they bring us into bondage. 
That is, slavery to sin, slavery to the traditions of men, slavery to the world, slavery to Satan. They bring us back into bondage or slavery, and even a slave of the curse of the law, which is death, condemnation, eternal punishment. This this is the false teaching of the false teachers. The false teaching of the false teachers bring us into bondage. So that when this happens, when this happens, what was the response of the apostle? Verse 5 says, the, the response of the apostle, he says, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Whenever someone seeks to undermine the true gospel, what attitude do we have? Do we yield to them? Here the apostle says, we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. And by hour, he doesn't mean hour of the clock from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. He doesn't mean it that way. He means for any length of time, for any time we didn't. We might say today for not even a second. We did not yield in subjection. So don't ever yield. When somebody says something false, contrary to the gospel, never yield. The apostle didn't yield. We shouldn't yield. Because if we do yield, we do give in. We do say, well, yeah, you're a brother too. We're we're all in it together. You mean well. I mean, well, we're in it together. When we do that, we are compromising the truth of the gospel. We can't do that. And if we do it, he says, he didn't compromise, he didn't yield in subjection, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. He's concerned for their souls. If it's compromised, then the truth will not remain among the people and then the people will have their souls in jeopardy. They will die and go to hell. That's why the truth cannot be compromised. Then 6 to 10. 6 to 10, he is explaining here, Galatians 2, 6 to 10, explaining both his cordiality and apostleship his cordiality with other apostles and reputed men and his apostleship and designated mission that he received and others received. And he says, everything was fine. Everything was set. We were cooperating with each other. Now why is there division? That's the point. Because there's going to be division mentioned in 2.11. So 2.6, he says, but from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. They are of high reputation, but he's qualifying that. They are of high reputation. That's no doubt. There's no doubt about that. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what God thinks. That's what his point is in the parentheses. By the way, parentheses doesn't matter. These, that it doesn't mean that the words are not in the original language. Parentheses has to do with uh, uh, by, uh, 
a byword or a thought that's an aside. We say a tangent or an aside, and then we pick up our main train of thought. That's the reason why the parentheses are here. It's not the reason. The reason is not that these words are not in the original language. If you read the introduction to your Bibles, they will explain why they have different symbols and signs. And that's the reason here in this uh, New American Standard Bible 1995 and previous editions. That's the way they mean it. So then he says, verse 7, On the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. Okay, here, Peter to the, un, uh, to the circumcised, which means to the Jews, to the Hebrew people, and then the Apostle Paul to the uncircumcised or the Gentiles. And it was God who worked for Peter and for Paul. For Peter and for Paul, here too. Many times, commentators, false preachers, will make a contradiction between Peter and Paul. They will say that they are at odds. Their theologies are contradictory. They don't preach the same gospel. They'll say things like that. Peter and Paul disagree and contradict each other. That's not true. Not true according to Galatians right here. It's the same gospel. Peter preached it to the Jews. Paul preached it to the Gentiles. And it says in verse 9, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Here now he adds James, Cephas, and John. Now look here. These four men recognized the grace that had been given to the Apostle Paul. They are in harmony. They recognize that Christ has indeed revealed himself to the Apostle Paul, and so they cooperate. He says they gave to him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. That's harmony and peace among the brethren that was given. And verse 10, one request. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So all of them are of one mind also to help the poor, the needy among them. Everybody's in agreement now. So what happened? Why the trouble? He mentioned that there were false brethren who were secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, well, how did it happen? How did that unfold? That's in verses 11 to 14. And we'll read from 11 to 21. Starts in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. 
and the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, also found, also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I die to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Well, then, now we have turmoil. And this is the problem. Verse 11, he says, Cephas came to Antioch, where Paul was. And then Paul opposed him to his face. Face to face, opposition. Because he stood condemned. It says he stood condemned. Because he stood condemned, Paul confronted him. He was in sin, therefore he needed to be confronted. And it's serious because his standing was condemnation. Not justification, not forgiveness, but condemnation, punishment. And what's the reason? What did Cephas do that was deserving of condemnation? Verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Before the men from James came, and that's the same James as verse 9 and 119, before they came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But now these Jewish men from James come. He doesn't eat with the Gentiles anymore because he fears the Jewish men, the circumcision, the party of the circumcision, the group of the Jewish men. That is the problem. But not only did Cephas do that. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. Cephas and the rest of the Jews. With the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He also succumbed. He compromised. He was a hypocrite. 
the rest of the Jews, Barnabas and Cephas, all hypocrites. Do hypocrites go to heaven? Is there standing a standing of salvation? According to Matthew 23, when Jesus denounces the Pharisees and the scribes, he sentences them to hell. He says in Matthew 23, 33, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? They're going to hell. Hypocrites go to hell. Right here, they stood condemned. They were all hypocrites. So they had to be confronted. And, and again, what was the sin? What was the sin? Was it mass murder? Was it mass adultery? Did they steal $10 million? What was the sin? Not fellowshipping over a meal. Because of fear, the fear of the party of the circumcision. He wanted to be a man pleaser. Remember that in 110? He says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He's not that anymore. He's not a man pleaser, a people pleaser. So therefore, he confronts them. But they were people pleasers. They feared each other and wanted to please each other. They weren't fearing God to please God. Further, verse 14. When, they were, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all. Look at this. When someone is not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... The Apostle Paul confronts him face to face in the presence of all. This is an approach that few people take today. Few people take this approach, if anybody. Who does this? Who would do this today? Did the Apostle Paul sin? Or are we sinning when we don't do this? We are sinning. We are sinning when we don't do this. When we see that people are not straightforward about the truth of the gospel and it requires confrontation and even public confrontation, then there should be a public confrontation. It says there, in the presence of all. All. And the confrontation is, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You hypocrite, that's... Essentially what he's saying, you're talking a good talk, but you're not walking it. Verse 15, and we should know better because we are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. That is, we don't worship idols and we don't do all this flagrant immorality that the Gentiles practice. We know better than to do that. So if we know better, then why don't we know better about these kinds of things? And then verse 16, even though we know better, we're not saved by the law. He says, verse 16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We might be on some level better than the Gentiles, but that's not our salvation. Our salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. Only faith in Christ, not by any works of the law. So we can't say, well, I don't worship images. 
So I'm better than the Gentiles and I'm going to heaven. Nor can they say, we are circumcised, therefore we're going to heaven and Gentiles are not going to heaven. They can't say anything like that. The only thing is faith in Jesus Christ. Only that. Then, since he's been talking so much about sin, he has to clarify. He says in 17, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. If we are sinners and we keep talking about being justified in Christ, does he mean that if we're justified in Christ and we're found sinners, that we continue in sins? So that Jesus is the endorser of sins? He says, may it never be. He's not a minister of sin. He's a minister of getting rid of sin. That's what he really is. That's the reason faith in Christ is necessary. And then 18 says, For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's saying, I don't want to go back to the old ways I was. I can't do that. He says, I used to be that way. I used to be a destroyer. I used to believe what you people are now believing, but I'm not going back to that. 19, why? Why is he not? For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. Through the purpose of the law, which was to expose the sins of the apostle and kill the apostle, put a curse on him, that was accomplished. After that was accomplished, I was raised from the dead spiritually to live to God. That happened. So if that happened then I must continue by faith in Christ. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. When Christ was crucified, I was crucified, spiritually speaking, because he died for me. So I was crucified with him, and it is no longer I who live. So I don't live for myself anymore. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I don't live for myself anymore. I live for Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. 110 said that he is a slave or bondservant of Christ. Then verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You see, false teachers, they preach grace. And when Paul is preaching this, people will say, well, you're not preaching grace. You don't believe in the grace of Christ. In modern times, among the Reformed, they use a proper phrase with an improper meaning, Christian liberty, and they say it's, we're under grace. And among Arminians, they, they um, hijack the word love and they say God loves us just the way we are. But here the apostle says, you 
are accusing me of nullifying the grace of God, but I'm not nullifying the grace of God. I'm telling you that the grace of God is powerful and the grace of God transforms us. You are saying that you can use grace and continue in sin. I'm saying, no, you can't use grace to continue in sin, but don't accuse me of nullifying the grace of God. You have distorted the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Righteousness does not come through obedience to the law because we will never be able to obey it the way God intended. But it does expose our sins and that we are not righteous and that we need Christ. By faith in Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ who died for our sins and then lives in us now, according to verse 20. So let's take the gospel as seriously as the Apostle Paul, chapter 1. Let's believe that he actually was a true apostle of Christ. Have no doubts about that. Having that as an assumption or those assumptions with us, he was very eager and diligent to preserve the truth of the gospel in the face of compromise. May we never compromise. May we always hold forth the true gospel and never yield in subjection to a false gospel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.